This week on The Elucidators, we're recording on Tuesday, June 8th, to discuss the longest-lasting military alliance in world history, NATO. The North Atlantic Treaty Organization was forged 71 years ago in the icy heat of the Cold War between the U.S.-led Western Bloc and the Soviet Union-led Eastern Bloc. Under the auspices of the alliance, the U.S. stationed hundreds of thousands of troops in West Germany to deter a potential Soviet advance. It worked, and eventually the USSR collapsed. But that was a full three decades ago. And now, U.S. President Donald Trump has reopened questions about NATO's future by threatening to cut America's military presence in Germany by a third. Could this spell the beginning of the end for NATO? Is it time to bring direct American engagement in Europe to a close? Or might we be risking something of real value here? We have thoughts. And as always, if you like what you're hearing, please remember to hit the subscribe button on your podcast app and to check us out on Facebook and YouTube. Just search for The Elucidators. Welcome to another episode of The Elucidators. As always, I'm your host, Steve Pally. With me, as always, are the two usual knuckleheads, Sumi Chatterjee and Galen Jackson. How are you guys doing? Go ahead, Galen. You can answer first. Yeah, I threw a curveball. <laughs> I normally introduce you sequentially, but I'm not doing that tonight. I'm doing something different. Doing all right, man. The quarantine continues to slowly eat my brain, but mm. the, the loss of brain is made up for by the growth of the hair. Yeah, that's right. So would you say that your brain is extruding through your scalp? Is that what's happening? Uh, Yeah, I need a dictionary to answer that, man. Well, it's like Play-Doh. It's like (laughs) one of those Play-Doh toys where you you, you have the garlic press and like it just kind of squirts out the... Sure, I'll go with that. I'll just say it's it's just nothing good. That's all I'll say. Got it. Zooms. I disagree. I think your hair looks great. And I think you should continue (laughs) to embrace the quarantine hair and just let it go. Nobody has to see your face and your hair till the fall when classes start back up. And even then, that shit might be online. And then you can like go like me and use headphones as a hairband. I'm just saying. Ah. I, I take your point, man. I just, you know, I, I my friends in college when I grew it out pulled the same trick on me. Yeah, it looks great. And I kept doing it for entirely <laughs> too long. Hey, nothing bad happened. You graduated and got a PhD, so you got that going for you. Depending on who you ask. Steve, you might want to take a different tack. Yeah. <laughs> is, is that not the right road to go down? No. I'm sorry. No. Um, yeah, we're, we're doing okay over here. Um, you know, I, uh, I've switched from Guinness to Sam Adams, so I'm feeling pretty good. Um, feeling especially good this week because we actually have three listener questions to get through. Really happy about that. Um, let's just... Let's just get through them real, real quick here. Uh, first question is from Jake, um, who has some compliments for us. Thank you, Jake. Uh, how is the GNH in Bhutan doing? The gross national happiness measurement. And which other countries in the world would you? Uh, excuse me. Which other countries in the world do you think would be most likely to implement a similar shift in priorities towards? human health and away from economic production, which is what gross national product, GNP, usually measures. Zooms, you know something about Bhutan, inexplicably. So you want to field this one? 
Yeah, uh, I will take this one. So a few years back, I did a little bit of reading on Bhutan, uh, both for uh, potential tourist reasons and also because it's a super fascinating, uh, weird, uh, it's beautiful and also kind of terrible place. So here's the, here's the <laughs> quick background on Bhutan. Uh, as those of you who are geography buffs know, some countries have fun names and some countries have very fun names. For example, Djibouti. Bhutan mm. occupies a space between fun and very fun. Bhutan. <laughs> uh, so speaking of, speaking of uh, spaces occupied, Bhutan is a small country nestled in the Himalaya Mountains. It is in between uh, megapowers, India and China. To mm. give you a sense of how big it is, it's like one and a half times geogra- the geographic size of New Hampshire, and it has about half the population of New Hampshire. I lived in New Hampshire for four years. It yeah. does not have a lot of people. No, and, and neither does Bhutan. Bhutan is a Buddhist country. It is uh, devoutly Buddhist. It, For the better part of a century, it has been a monarchy, and it has gone through peaceful transitions between monarchs. They think they're on their fourth or fifth king now. Mm-hmm. Uh, the One of the most recent monarchs decided to democratize the country, which weirdly went against the will of the people. They are a democracy <laughs> that has a king at the top and the people don't want a democracy. They were against it. Wow. Uh, they have strange laws that make a lot of sense if you think about it. So they don't have, they're not a big economic power. They rely a lot on tourism, but they are very selective on who they let in. Like they only let in 6,000 people a year and you have to apply to be a tourist. It's this crazy thing. Hmm. Uh, they only started allowing television in, in 1999. Uh, their kings must retire by age 65, but some of them are like like the last one, for example. Yeah, at 51, he's like, no, I'm done being king. I'm gonna call it. <laughs> I'm rich enough. <laughs> yeah, so he just stopped being king. Most of their, their senior advisors, their senior government officials are Western educated, like Wisconsin, Madison, Penn State. It's this very strange place. Anyway, to get to this question of the, of the GNH, what is the GNH? So since Bhutan can't really compete on economic scales, on, on, on economic measures or military measures, it focuses on what it calls gross national happiness, which is this own sort of like, hey, we care about our own well-being and health and the happiness of our people, and this is what the focus of our country is. So if one of the things that they do is they're like, well, look, we care about the future of this country, in the world. And so they have it written, it's a law that 60% of the country has to stay uh, forested. And so as a result, it's being being a mostly forested country. It is cool. Bhutan is not just a carbon negative country, not just a carbon neutral country, it's carbon negative, which is to say they absorb more carbon dioxide out of the the air than they put out there. Hmm. Very cool. Uh, There is, however, some dark side there are some dark sides to Bhutan. Uh, in the 20th century, they expelled tens of thousands of ethnic Nepalese, many of whom who had many of whom could trace their roots in Bhutan to the 1600s. Mm. Uh, so this is a way of making it an ethnically homogenous country. Mm. It's easier to be uh, to register high on the gross national happiness scale when everybody thinks and looks and believes the same stuff, which Interesting. is one of the things they did. And uh, GNH, if you dig into it a little bit, 
while it while it sticks like very noble goals, it's also entirely internally defined, and it kind of floats according to to uh, to when they're defining happiness. But the UN, for example, has their own index, which relies on surveying people in each country, and they have a World Happiness Report that they put out every I think it's every year or two years. And in the 2019 uh, World Happiness Report, Bhutan places at a robust 95th. So. Ah. Yeah. All right, top 100 out of uh, 196, so, you know. Yeah, top half of the field. Yeah, so, 50th percentile. <laughs> yeah. Could be it's worse. something. Could be a lot worse. Could be a lot worse. So to, to the question of, like, how's their GNH doing, the best way to look at Bhutan is to not necessarily look at GNH, which is a big, like, PR thing for them, but look at how, like, look at different ways of looking at Bhutan. Uh, but to your, second, to your second question about what other countries would you like to see a similar shift towards human health, I think you can look at countries that do really well on the World Happiness Report, like the Scandinavian countries, because they are doing very well uh, by focusing on things like public health. They're doing very well by focusing on COVID, for instance. So they're a lot happier right now than we are here in the United States. That's for darn sure. Okay, cool. Um, thank you, Jake, and thank you, Sumi. Um, let's see. Do you want to got one of you guys want to read question two this week? Sums, go for it. Okay. So uh, this is a great and tough question. This comes from uh, Drew in Ontario. Uh-huh. He says, uh, in a previous episode, you had talked about the uh, availability of combat drones giving smaller governments or even insurgents. That was the Libya episode. Yeah. All right, uh, Drew, I'm going to go ahead and uh, this is a really good and multi-level question. So I'm just going to, I'm going to reinterpret it so that, we, so that we can get it out there. Drones are spreading. Drones offer a lot of advantages. Is it possible that drones are going to serve as an equalizer in battle? Are they changing the calculus for regional power, for when a regional power might engage with its neighbors? What does the future of drone warfare look like? Is it possible this could balance out against traditional air forces and other traditional military forces we think about it? I turn it over to you, too. Uh, short answer is No. Uh, because traditional air forces have much heavier armaments and cannot usually be taken down by small arms fire from the ground, unlike drones. I think drones are very useful for things like reconnaissance, um, for lighting up convoys with Hellfire missiles. It's pretty handy for that. Uh, Terrorizing civilians, pretty good for that too. In terms of war fighting against uh, fully equipped Armies, navies, and air forces, not not so good. Um, I think it's kind of a tertiary part of warfare right now. If you're dealing with two militias going against each other or two kind of third-rate countries, then they're going to play a much r- larger role simply by nature of those combatants not having access to real air forces. So I think that they're they're helpful in certain circumstances, but they're not anywhere close to being uh, ready to replace full air forces. What do you think, Alan? Yeah, I think that's basically right. I mean, to a certain extent, we're going to be speculating here a bit on the future of warfare. But I think drones are great for stuff like fighting the types of wars we're seeing in Libya, like you said, targeting convoys, yeah. uh, hitting targets in ungoverned spaces, which was yep. the Obama administration's... Suppressing insurgencies. MO. Yeah, stuff like that. Um, and on the equalizer side... It is true that these things are relatively cheap. 
The technology is not difficult to acquire anymore. And compared to training a combat pilot, which can take upwards of a decade or paying for uh, combat aircraft, certainly this is a, a route for a country like the United Arab Emirates or Turkey that's more attractive. But in terms of game-changing technology and conventional wars, for the moment, I don't see it being that sort of instrument in warfare. Cool. All right. Thank you, Drew, from Ontario, was it? Lovely, lovely province in Canada. Um, and moving on to our third question from Craig. Uh, very complimentary. Come on, Craig. Yeah, Fine. new listener. <laughs> thank, thank you uh, for your question and your compliments, Craig. Craig wants to know, paraphrasing here, um, he has he listened to our episode on China, uh, and he has listened to another take on China from two geopolitical strategists who get a fair bit of attention on social media, Peter uh, Zihan and George Friedman, who are both, I believe, affiliated with the website Stratfor. They're consultants and also academics. Uh, and they both cut against the grain in terms of what seems to be a widely accepted concern about China's rise and what it could mean for the future of the liberal world order. In particular, they are both very dismissive of China's rise and routinely express with confidence that China is basically destined to fall apart in the near future. Now, you guys tend to speak with less confidence and a lot of nuance, which to me makes you come across as more credible. Yo, this is a great question. Yeah, yeah, no, like keep it coming. Yeah, <laughs> if he wants to too. come guest on the show, have at it. <laughs> we we feel more credible um, by just saying we don't know what we're talking about, so it's perfect. Um, so I'm curious, just curious, what you make of Zihan and Friedman? Friedman, I'm not trying to get you to start some kind of beef with them. Too late. It's on. Yeah, it is on. It's on. Uh, but it just frustrates me when I hear versus Stratfor. It's, <laughs> yeah. the, it's the battle everybody's bring been waiting it. for. Bring yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, oh, I'm God. not trying to get you to start some kind of beef with them. Uh, it just frustrates me when I hear a set of experts contradict each other. I want to figure out what the consensus is. Uh, thank you. Well, thank you, Craig. What is the consensus? Is China going to fall apart or is it going to dominate the world in the 21st century? Ain't no century? consensus. Ain't no Sorry, consensus. Craig. Well, there that's not one. satisfying. Well, man. Such as, such as international politics. Yeah. I'll kick it over to Dr. Jackson. <laughs> I, mean, I, I, I love the question. I appreciate the question. I don't know what to say other than, sorry, there is no consensus. And uh, <laughs> experts tend to disagree on matters like this. Yeah. Um, now, what I will say, I, I don't think we meant to imply that China's rise last episode is a sure thing or that China's going to no. dominate the world. China's got a lot of problems, which is what sure do. Yeah. which is what those guys are focusing on. We talked about a few of them last episode. Sumi mentioned just the geography of it, which those guys uh, tend to emphasize pretty heavily. But, you know, the, the demographic issue is huge. Their environmental problems are huge. Uh, depending on how you measure it, Chinese debt might be a real drag going forward. You know, at the end of the Cold War, the the talk going forward was Japan's going to rule the world. A few years before that, famous I remember that. book, yeah, yep. famous book is written in 1987 by a guy named Paul Kennedy. The rise and fall of the great powers predicts the U.S. is going down. Everyone's convinced he's right. You know, uh, hi history proved those those predictions wrong. Quick disclosure: both Galen and I teach that book. Go ahead. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> uh, so you know, it's it's hard to predict these things. China being the global hegemon is by no means a sure thing. 
But it's important to emphasize, if you look at the traditional power indices, things like size of one's economy, military power, that sort of thing, compared to 30 years ago, China is a radically different country than it was. And that's what most people are fixated on when they talk about China's rise. And there's also non-traditional indices, like what kinds of technologies that they're leading in, like artificial intelligence uh, surveillance, obviously, nanomaterials, fusion, electric vehicles, and so on. Uh, they're making very well-coordinated, very well-funded efforts to dominate in sort of the next set of technologies that are going to be important in the 21st century. Uh, and they're running neck and neck with the United States in some of these. So that's also something to consider. I want to tie this back with uh, Jacob uh, Jake's really good question about mm. uh, Bhutan, uh, with the question of which countries do you think would uh, benefit from implementing a shift in priorities towards human health? And I'd like to answer that question with China. <laughs> <laughs> that would be good. They, because they have, uh, no, this is like one of the things that Gillen said is right. Like they got massive problems. One of them is as they've gotten wealthier, like Steve's talking about too, they've also developed really bad uh, public and private health habits. Their diabetes rate of the ro- the growth in diabetes prevalence in China is astounding. Uh, their air quality in cities, in and around cities, is absolutely terrible. They're losing fresh water, which is really bad when you're talking about a billion and a half people. On top of that, they smoke. And I think that the air quality is so bad that smoking actually improves it. It's like, that's where they're at. <laughs> that That's like, that's... That's dark. So I just <laughs> I just want to say this one last thing on the Zihan Friedman question uh, from Craig. Look, you're not going to have a consensus, but the thing that you should do that I try and uh, I think I'm going to speak for Gail. I'm like, you teach your students to do this, and it's an important thing. Like when you get someone's opinion, try and do your best to figure out where they're coming from. So for these guys, like uh, like we talked about, they're focused on geography as the great determiner. If other folks are focused on technological advancements as the great determiner of China, like that'll inform where they're coming from. So a better, so just kind of like figure out where their agenda is, and then cobble together. Uh, a really unsatisfying life where you accept there is no consensus. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, Craig. That's a great question. Uh, thanks to all three of our question providers uh, this week. Keep I, them coming. Keep them coming. Like, we'll, we probably won't do three or more questions every week. We might keep it to one or two. But we wanted to do all three this week just because we're excited that people are paying attention to us. <laughs> That's a great feeling. So thank you uh, very producer much. Pete, producer Pete. Can you cut that part where we sound pathetic? Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Too late. (laughs) It's up to Pete. I don't know. Um, Sumi, where are we this week? What's going on? Well, that is a, a bit of a, a bit of a riddle. Where are mm. we? Is uh, is we're kind of in several places. Would you say that we're over the North Atlantic? Would that be correct? No, because that's also part of the fucking riddle. Okay, mm. so here's, here's, here's the, the short answer. We are talking about NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Mm-hmm. But we're specifically talking about NATO because everybody's uh, paragon of virtue and dignity, Donald Trump, mm. has gone ahead and decided that the U.S., which currently has 30,000, 35,000 troops in Germany, that we need to yank about 10,000 out of there. That NATO, sounds like a lot. Yeah, it is. It also, as has been pointed out by the uh, Snark Patrol on Twitter, is roughly the same number of troops that he wanted uh, deployed in D.C. to protect him. <laughs> oh. 
Good point. <laughs> so just fly them straight from Germany and like just just paratroop them over DC to listen. People, and I'm not saying I'm not with these people, but the most, the biggest current in American culture, not just politics, American culture, is do you or do you not hate Donald Trump? Yeah. There's a lot of people on the Twitters that fucking hate <laughs> that guy. Are you saying that people are talking? It's kind of what it sounds like. People are saying the, stuff. The, the streets be talking, and the streets be more and more crowded with folks that don't go in the streets, and they be talking loud about how much they fucking hate that guy. All right, so so back to the matter at hand. Our president decided to yank what roughly a third of the troops. Yeah, ninety five hundred. Yeah, stationed in Germany from Germany uh, under the auspices of NATO. Why are they there? What do they do exactly? Well, hopefully not much is what they, <laughs> what they do. Like, okay. And, and so, you, so then, like, of course, the, the question is, well, if you don't want them to do anything, why are they there? Isn't this a waste of time, money, and what the hell are they doing in another country? Uh-huh. The, answer is, it, the answer comes from another time, Steve. It comes uh-huh. from a time before... Uh, the before, before time? The, before this long peace that we've been living in. You have to understand NATO really in the context of World War II, the great horrors of decades, centuries of European wars, and the desire to try and construct a peace... Uh, in Europe, which had been ravaged by wars. There's a really dark joke that I heard recently uh, that Germans used to have because they were involved in so many bloody wars, which was, enjoy the war while it's on, you'll hate the peace. So uh, <laughs> That is yeah. dark, man. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, or as Germans would say, eh. Right? So uh, this, this is kind of it. Like, uh, there's a big question about Germany coming from, like, specifically from 1815 to 1945 and then through 1989, coming off of the Napoleonic Wars, through World War I, through World War II, the big geopolitical question in all of international politics was, what do we do about Germany? When Germany gets big and strong, it fucks with its neighbors, it does stuff like genocides and world wars and the like. So uh. we say, like, hey, let's stop, let's stop them from doing this. This, by the way, is a fully comprehensive and detailed recounting of European 19th and 20th century history. <laughs> I will not be take, I will not be challenged to question. Yeah, so, that's fine. <laughs> Please right, continue. So, right. So you say, like, you know, coming off of like with this recent medium, short, and long-term history of Germany, what do you do? Well, Germany's divided coming out of out of World War II. Well, one of the ways that you keep Germany from becoming big and strong and making all kinds of problems, which is the German question, is to keep Germany from getting a big and strong and powerful army. Well, how do you do that but still manage to keep the Russians from taking over Germany? Because Russia, and I'm not sticking up for Stalin, but you'd say, <laughs> look, hey, in World War I and World War II, the Germans brought the fight to us. You know how we could deal with this? We could just take Germany, and then this won't be a problem for us. But we didn't want them to take Germany no, at the end of World we War didn't. II. We didn't. So this is where we get, to, we get to this point of like, what do we do about Germany after World War II? Well, you don't let them have an army, and the way you keep them safe is you put a, uh, the, the, the Defense Department, and it used to be the Department of War, and the term was a fuck ton of American troops in Germany to keep them from getting too big How and too How many uh, at the peak? Galen, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it was like around a quarter mil. Is that right? Yeah, U.S. troops is like, yeah, 275K in the 60s, I think. That's crazy. And that's at the height of the Cold War, obviously, post-Cuban Missile Crisis and all that jazz. 
But it wasn't just the Americans. It was also the British, the French, really the allies, right, uh, that won World War II. This was in West Germany, right, because Germany was still divided during the Cold War. Um, and we can talk more about the Cold War. I think, Sumi, you've done a really good job of laying out what NATO was supposed to do. Um, Galen, you uh, you have a, a really fun saying from the, the first um, – the Alliance's first secretary general, this guy, Lord Ismay, what was that? Yeah, right. It's NATO's design to keep the Soviets out, the Americans in, and the Germans down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it did all those things, right? Yeah. Well, that's the beauty of the NATO system, as Sumi Still was saying. Does. Yeah. Yeah. Still does. Yeah. You know, you've, you've got what was called the German problem, right? Which mm. was Germany on its own is Too an strong. independent pole of power. Yeah. yeah. Um, just ask the Soviets during World War II. The Soviets ultimately win, but they take about 27 million deaths or something like that during the fighting. Yeah, uh, and in terms of geographic expanse, in terms of where Germany got inside of the Soviet Union, you can think about everything from the eastern seaboard of the United States to Chicago destroyed. Yeah. That's what happened to the Soviet Union. <laughs> Look at a map of Europe by October 1941. You know, the yeah. the depth in which do the Germans get into the Soviet Union all the way to the English Channel is under German, you know, German control. And so the way that this is solved is you don't want Germany to be this independent pole of power. That's going to be threatening to the Soviets. It's also going to be threatening to the West Europeans. Um, so you don't want Germany providing for its own defense. You also don't want the Soviets overrunning Western Europe. You know, one of uh, Dwight Eisenhower's aides when he was commanding NATO in the early 50s, when Eisenhower asked what the Soviets would need to make it to the English Channel, he said shoes. <laughs> so good. Quick aside, uh, that is 80 mm, percent of a joke. The other 20 percent is the fact that the Soviets were notorious for not having enough boots uh, because they would produce too many left boots and not enough right ones. It's the miracles of a command economy where you have entire factories that just make left boots and then another factory that makes right boots and they don't talk to each other. Anyway, please. So hold on. We're, how far apart were these factories? Like, I why, no they, why, why did the right boot factory, and this is not the beginning of a joke or riddle, why did the right boot factory not talk to the left boot factory? I don't know. I guess that that commissar uh, just didn't do a very good job during the entirety of the Cold War, and or everybody was drinking a lot of vodka. Did they do a really poor? Did they do a really poor accounting of the number of Russian soldiers that only had one foot? <laughs> <laughs> it's the most most plausible explanation. That would that would explain it. This this is not even a thing that I've would even occur to me as a problem in modern life. So that's right. It was a problem for the Soviets at one pretty point. Pretty remarkable. But the point stands: they had a huge, huge army at the end of World War II. They owned Eastern Europe. They owned Eastern Germany, and they were poised. They could do whatever they wanted in Western Europe. And to think they did it all with left boots. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. The solution is NATO, with the United States playing the leading role and having a large number of foreign troops in West Germany to keep the peace. Mm. Um, and this system works pretty well. The, German, the West Germans, for example, are not allowed to develop their own nuclear weapons, which would have been potentially a cause of World War III for the Soviets. The Germans are not able to threaten the rest of Western Europe. 
Um, and everyone can kind of live with a solution whereby the Americans are providing for German security. That's, that's where NATO sort of starts off. Um, the number of troops has tapered down, you know, from millions in the immediate post-war period to, like we said, roughly two, 275,000 U.S. troops in the 1960s. Which is basically the size of our entire deployable army in the 21st century. Yeah, something like that. Um you know, down to 70,000 in the new millennium. And now we're down to about 35,000, which is why, which is why removing 9,500 would be a a big chunk of what we've got there. Now, the other big part of this story is right after the cold war. Right. Because NATO won the cold war, right? Well, yeah. I mean, so the Soviet union's gone. It's like NATO's purpose, um, for many people at least, has been served. At least half, probably more of the purpose. The other half was to keep Germany down, right? Yeah, which we can talk about how maybe that problem has also been solved, although Mm. that one's a little more up for debate. Sure. Um, You know, what's really interesting here is the decision to expand NATO. Um, And Mm. this is really important for understanding the situation today because this is infuriating to the Russians today. Okay, This, more than any other issue, has poisoned relations with Moscow. Right. Obviously, during the Cold War, the Russians or the Soviets at that time uh, cooperated with the Warsaw Pact countries to fight the Cold War against NATO, uh, which was basically Canada, the U.S., and the Western Alliance, the, the mostly Western European powers. At the end of the Cold War, the Warsaw Pact and the Soviet Union dissolve. And uh, the Eastern European communist states, one by one, become democratic, correct? Germany reunifies, and basically the entire Russian bloc just dissolves. It goes the way of the dodo. What happens then? Well, I'll read you some of the names of countries that are now in NATO, Steve. The Czech Republic, Hungary, Mm. Poland, Bulgaria, the Baltic states, that is Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Romania, Slovakia, Slovenia, the list goes on. As recently as this year, North Macedonia was added. You know, <laughs> most of these countries are formerly in the Warsaw Pact. Yeah. Um, and so naturally that's going to infuriate the Russians. And the Russians claim, by the way, that this was all done in violation of a solemn promise that the United States made at the end of the Cold War, mm. which was, as you mentioned, Germany is reunified and allowed to be put in NATO, which right. – is a huge deal. In some ways, the Cold War is all about Germany. Yes, and by the way, the Western Europeans weren't necessarily like ringing bells about this themselves. The French and, uh, and the British were pretty freaked out about it, right? Mar- Margaret Thatcher, the British Prime Minister, was especially you know appalled by this. And yep. the, the the French um, have their own history with the Germans. <laughs> it's not good. Which was, you know, not that distant in memory. So, yeah, people were sort of concerned about reunifying Germany and allowing Mm. it to be in NATO. But be that as it may, the the Russians claim in exchange for making that concession, uh, Secretary of State James Baker, who served in the first Bush administration, said in February 1990, NATO would not expand one inch to the east. Well, that sounds like bullshit. So... What the United States claims today is that that meant it only applied to East Germany, not the rest of Eastern Europe, to which the Russians reply, are you fucking kidding me? (laughs) But that's true because there aren't any military bases, any NATO bases, any American troop deployments in the former East Germany. That's correct. And Mm. let's let's also 
keep in mind, like, everyone's like, okay. That sounds like sophistry, but please continue. Sure, but a lot of, <laughs> a, it's, I mean, it's political science in quotes, so mm. whatever. Uh, the part of this is also, like, you go down the list of all these former Warsaw Pact states that are now in NATO or trying to get into NATO, and then you're like, oh, it pisses off the Russians. Oh, the Russians and their sovereign, oh, the Russians and their sphere of influence. Well, in the 90s, the trajectory of Russia was meant to be that they would also go that way, that they would move towards the West economically, that they would democratize, that they would embrace free markets. And instead, for the last 20 plus years, they've gone Putin's way, which is illiberal, less democratic, and more antagonistic towards the West. We keep talking about Russia like, oh man, they're just getting dicked by the US and like in the stuff. But like, Russia's dick in Russia. Back to you. Who started first? Who dicked first? I mean, look, that that all might be true. The Russians, in my view, have a legitimate beef on what the, the promise was. It's hard for me to believe, you know, the, the argument is this only applied to East Germany. That's reflected in the treaty on reunifying Germany in September 1990. But I think anyone interpreting that statement, not one inch to the east, would say the Russians have a legitimate case here. The other thing here is just the wisdom of doing this if you're NATO. Mm. And I I recognize some of the, you know, all these countries basically, if you're a country like Poland, right, and you've literally disappeared from the map several times times in history, you want an American security guarantee. That makes a lot of sense to me. You want to be under NATO's security umbrella. And for for their benefit, like they're getting a thousand American troops now. Like as we take ten thousand out of ninety five hundred out of Germany, Poland's getting a thousand. And there is some question of whether or not that's because the Polish uh, regime has been kissing uh, Trump's backside for the yeah. better part of three so years. So let's let's pivot to that. Let's talk a little bit more about what Trump is up to, uh, because Sumi, I know you love to talk about our president. Um, so is Trump the first guy to complain about NATO being obsolete, pointless, uh, free riders on American military money? I'm going to get to your question in a second. I'm going to disagree with the run-up to the question. I don't like to talk about this guy. He's just... <laughs> you like to get mad. I wish I wish I never had to talk about this guy. Yeah, no, he is point taken. Aggra- he is aggravating in ways that, like, I didn't know a human could aggravate me. That's his superpower, but yeah, totally. Oh, my... Okay, so here's... The, let me get to the, the meat of, of your question. So... Uh, and Galen, you tell me if you teach this differently when you talk about NATO with your students. Uh, so for a long time, lots of presidents, lots of folks in the U.S. have made a ver- various versions of the following argument. Every NATO member is meant to give 2% of its GDP to NATO operations. Uh, countries like France have been particularly egregious in their NATO contributions. Yeah, they fell under like 1% yeah. for a while, right? It's like- yeah, they're free riding, free riding... Uh, cafe coffee sipping, snooty Europeans, free riding on American Universal healthcare that, having right. motherfuckers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, these superior bitches, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, and even big and powerful and wealthy countries like Germany aren't doing this. They're not going to get to their 2% until 2031. They're at 1. 1.3 to 4% roughly. Yeah, they're yeah, they're yeah. under their two percent. They're not going to get there till twenty thirty one. So there's this there's this point of Americans being like, "Hey, 
y'all are <laughs> you all are broke asses, pay your fair share. Yeah. But in the real, and this is what I teach my students when this comes up, the Americans just shouldn't care because of what we're talking about with the German question. It gets us so much more in terms of influence and uh, and warm relations with these countries that are that do have big economies that do have the potential to become big militaries, and they don't do that, and they have our militaries there. So maybe we should just not make such a big deal out of it, and maybe Trump might think before, to- before talking. Yeah. Quick side note: they also help us fight and lose our ill-conceived imperial wars <laughs> in places that don't matter. And we help and and lose their ill-conceived <laughs> wars. Yeah, yeah, that's true, like in Libya. Yeah. Um, absolutely, yeah. Teamwork so, so, makes the dream work. Yeah, it's, it's very, like, I find it incredibly funny that NATO did its main job, which was to win the Cold War without ever firing a shot, more or less. And then it wins the Cold War and it fucking goes sideways, ends up in the Balkans, Afghanistan, Iraq, and Libya, uh, among other places that you just don't want to go fight wars in. Uh, NATO's been in all of them, uh, dying alongside American troops, which is great. Thank you, guys. Um, But, you know, we probably shouldn't have gone into those places in the first place. Please continue. Right, but your criticism has more to do with, like— well, it has mostly to do with poor uh, decision-making by Presidents Bush and President Obama, but also uh, Prime Minister Cameron. And then- it also speaks to the point that we kind of point someplace and they've gone, right? Even though they've had major misgivings about it. Um, I mean, and- I, th- I think after 9-11, the pressure or the, the initiative for invoking Article 5, which is the heart of the treaty, you know, an attack on one country is an attack on all. Mm-hmm. I think the initiative on that actually came from the Europeans and people like Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld. Yeah, um, were, I think you're right. We're actually like not wanting to have an include multilateral – mission to of Afghanistan. Of course, many Europeans were also killed on September 11th. So yeah, they have that rationale. Well, to, to me, Steve, this all raises the question of when, whether NATO's outlived its shelf life. Indeed. Uh, that is the question. That is Donald Trump's contention uh, starting from before he was, was elected. And then immediately after his election, he said NATO is obsolete. No, you are giving him too much credit. That's not what he says. It's he not says what he they, said. He says they rip us off. They rip us off like nobody else except for China, and they're going to have to pay more. Only I can get them to pay their fair share. Look at how much I'm getting them to pay. He doesn't actually know about about their existential purpose or what their purpose is going forward. He's just got a beef and he's complaining. But he knows Back how to, to run uh, tenements and collect rent. So. Yes, and run successful universities and state companies. <laughs> that too, and casinos. Yeah. Don't forget yeah. casinos. Okay, um, so you know, presidents have actually always complained about NATO. Um, Trump escalated the rhetoric, um, and it's kind of part and parcel of his larger view of foreign policy. Correct, which is that foreign policy should not be a policy, or or there should be none. <laughs> The United States should just do whatever it wants and mostly stay home. That's my understanding of Trump's foreign policy. Uh, so not no, defunding NATO and taking away troops would seem to be kind of part and parcel of that, right? Well, part of this problem is that 
with everything Trump, there's a question of what's the personal aspect, right? Ah. So he can always complain, find something to complain about, because by finding something to complain about, he can look tough, which is what he wants. He wants people to think he's tough. And most recently, uh, there is a dust-up with German Chancellor Chancellor Angela Merkel about a G7 summit, which she said she would not attend. And so there is a question of that that news came out before the troop withdrawal. So there's a question, because Trump is uh, not known for his largeness of spirit or ability to reason, that this might all be about uh, petty beef. It should also be noted, there's an announcement that was made for 9,500 troops to be drawn out of Germany, but they haven't been drawn out. And there are lots of national security types, even Republicans in Congress, that are like, yo, Donnie, man, let's cut that shit out. Yeah, it's like, not This good. isn't good for anybody. You yeah. need to stop this stuff. You made the announcement, let it go. All right. Double, let, let's, let's say this goes forward and we withdraw the troops. And let's say that Trump receives a second term through Democratic means or other uh, in November. And uh, laying all that aside, he decides to withdraw the rest of the troops from Germany. Why do we care? Would that matter? Potentially, it would matter a lot. So I think you could answer a couple of these questions either way. So I think this is where we should open it up. So one hmm. one question is whether Europe actually hangs together if the United States isn't involved. Now, yeah. that might that might kind of sound like U.S.-centric to a certain extent. I'm sure it is. But like – Look around for a second. You've got the Brexit. The EU has been having some issues. Like there was a recent sort of policy game played. I forget who conducted it. It's a Texas Security Studies Institute. Or? It was RAND. Are you talking about the RAND Baltic oh, thing? Oh, it was RAND, yeah. So, well, yeah. So, there, so there's that, which is how the hell do you f- defend places like the Baltics? This was like a, a theoretical exercise. If the U.S. isn't in NATO, do the rest of the countries like have coordination problems? Do they start fearing one another? The answer is yes. Right? The answer to many of those questions was yes. It's like maybe the German problem is gone. Maybe it's not. We do have this party, the Alternative for Germany Party, which is a far right party that now holds the th- third uh, largest number of seats uh, in the German Bundestag. Mm. Um, you know, like which is making the larger parties cut deals with it, uh, which would have been unthinkable even just a few years ago, like Mm -hmm. this whole idea of France and Britain sort of having some sort of joint nuclear force. Quick, uh, quick question. The AFD, are they neo-Nazis? I don't think I'd call them neo-Nazis, but I think there are neo-Nazis that are affiliated with it. Like I I would not want to be affiliated with that party. (laughs) It's a populist party uh, that is on the far right, anti-immigrant. Yeah. Well, that's where they got their start, right? After yeah. Germany allowed a lot of uh, immigrants in Syria. Have, have they said that they will rearm Germany if they gain power? I actually don't know. Do you know, Sumi? No, uh, I don't think that they're a... Part of the challenge for the AFD is... Okay, very quick on the AFD. The AFD is based mostly in Eastern Germany, uh, what what it was the former East Germany, and uh, in what 
social scientists would call a natural experiment, even though it's not a natural experiment, is that (laughs) as the East and West have developed economically differently, when they were East and West, they've continued to develop differently with the East not developing as well. So this is really kind of a case of of a poorer half of the country where there isn't as much, there aren't as many jobs, and this is, can't be understated. I'm not joking. There just aren't as many women. Women have left the poor, broke ass Eastern <laughs> East Germany, and there's a higher percentage of uh, of women in West Germany. Right. So they ain't got jobs. They ain't got ladies. But what they do have is white pride. And mm. so this has become the basis of this political movement. But it also kind of gives a it gives you a sense of where their ceiling is on their actual power, their their capacity to have political power in Germany. Yeah. So I, I love asking questions I know the answer to. Uh, uh, the uh, alternative for, for Germany is an anti-immigrant party. It is a populist party, it is a is a right-wing party. Um, it started a lot more neo-Nazi than it currently is. The closer parties tend to get to power, the more they tend to moderate, um, with notable exceptions, like the actual titular National Socialist Workers' Party um, in Germany prior to during the Weimar Republic. But um, AFD, I think you're right. They do have a ceiling, number one. Number two, they want Germany to be a quote-unquote normal country, right? They don't want Germany to dominate the world. Two different things. Um, so this question of whether or not the German question is going to reemerge if the United States leaves, um, you know, I think we read the same, who was it? Uh, Robert Kagan article. Yeah. Yeah. In, uh, was it, uh, yeah, the Kegs. foreign affairs. Yeah. I read that and I was just like, this is not a good article for a lot of different (laughs) reasons. Um, but, uh, he's drawing together a lot of different straw men. And this is one of them in my opinion, in that, look, the AFD uh, could be a uh, like a Fidesz type party. Um, it could be a Liga type party. Um, I'm I'm referencing uh, far right. Well, not not even far right anymore. Uh, sort of Euroskeptic um, populist parties in Europe, in Hungary and Italy, respectively, or, or the National Front um, in France, or whatever they're calling themselves now. I think they they rebranded. Um, so these are these are parties that are Eurosceptic. They're not that into the European Union. They don't like immigrants, um, but they're not necessarily on the march, right, to destroy their neighbors and take over the world. That's so, a little different. Steve, if the, if that's right, um, I would just you know caution. I don't think anyone in 1928 Weimar Germany thought they knew it was coming either, but True. you know, I, I, I take your point. Um, but if, if that's right and the Russians are Russia's a shadow of the Soviet union and the German problem has largely been solved because Germany has done an admirable job of confronting its history. And, um, it's a different country than it was like some would say that Germany is a more functional democracy than the United States. And I oh, think that I, th- I think a lot of people would say that. At, especially at this juncture. <laughs> well, <laughs> right. So, so if, if that's all true, um, that would seem to be an argument that NATO is in fact obsolete. <laughs> it could be. Yeah. And, and the question is, well, if the Germans are a more functional democracy than the United States and they have the power to stand up, and unify Europe under the auspices of the European Union, right, where they cooperate with the French now that the British are gone. Some people have said that the British leaving the European Union 
diminishes the European Union. And it does because Britain leaving the European Union is kind of like Texas leaving the United States. It's a big deal economically and in terms of military power. On the other hand, the British were never very good European Union members to begin with. They joined late. They never joined the euro and they were huge pains in the asses and just generally gummed up the works. The remaining powers in the European Union are actually much closer policy-wise. They see eye to eye, um, you know, the uh, sort of Northern European powers. Southern European, a little bit different economically, uh, but they mostly go along for the ride. I think it's interesting to note that the Germans have decided to open up the pocketbook, the European pocketbook for the first time, and actually give away money to... Uh, countries that need it in the European Union in the form of grants. So ordinarily, the Germans insist that countries get uh, if they lend if they lend money to countries through the European Union because they basically control the European Central Bank. Uh, they have the most powerful European economy, so they can do that. They run the euro. Uh, those countries have to basically stay under a certain threshold of debt. They, in exchange for the money they get, they have to make institutional reforms, so on and so forth. Um, For the COVID loans, during the COVID crisis, the new plan is actually to give away money in the form of grants. So kind of like the Paycheck Protection Plan here in the U.S., it's helicopter money. That's never been done before, and it's what's necessary. And this could be interpreted as a signal that the Germans are ready to stand up and run Europe. And you could say, well, that's what we didn't want them to do during World War I and World War II. Guess what? De facto – they are they're, they've done it. They run Europe, and everybody seems to be mostly okay with it, especially now that the United States is the way the United States is, right? So to, to me, the, the questions that arise from that are, will people continue to be okay with that if, in fact, you don't have the U.S. in there as like the quote-unquote American pacifier, right? Who wants the fucking United States there anymore? So, well – I think they a lot do. Of, I thought a lot of the Eastern Europeans do. The, I yeah. mean, the, the Germans weren't particularly happy about this recent announcement, and no, certainly not the way it was carried out. But then another question is: I mean, we we can argue, right, that maybe some of these countries that have been incorporated into NATO since the Cold War are more liabilities than assets. Not to offend, you know, some of our Baltic listeners, but like <laughs> Estonia is not adding like a ton of tank forces to the NATO equation. Yeah. And they're right on the Russian border and the Russians can take over all three Baltics within a couple days, a couple, like, yeah, a handful of between two and three days. It's been war games and there's very little NATO can do about it. So, I mean, like if, if you care about that, you need, you need the U S involved. Um, but maybe you don't care about that. And you're okay with the Russians throwing their weight around in Eastern Europe. Mm. One other thing I would say is like the nuclear proliferation question, mm-hmm. um, which that was kind of the the way you prevented the West Germans from getting nukes was the American security guarantee. If you indeed want the Germans to play this sort of role you're talking about and to be able to stand up to the Russians – um, it's hard for me to see how the Germans don't have an independent nuclear deterrent. Like the, the French talk about this Euro deterrent. I don't know of any country that has like given control of its nuclear arsenal. Um, what about the United States? Well, ex- yes, the United States <laughs> did it with Germany during the Cold War. That's yeah. true. 
you're you're right. As I was saying it, I had that you're thought. Like, uh, yeah. uh, de facto, in any case, um, but I don't see the French give it. Let me put it. I don't see the French giving the Germans their control over their nuclear arsenal. Well, didn't didn't uh, isn't this something that Macron is talking about right now? Macron and Merkel are simpatico. They see eye to eye, and they see a need to reform Europe around the Franco-German axis, which I think makes a ton of sense, especially now that the British is, is are gone. I mean, we'll, we'll. I mean, that would be very interesting. I'm somewhat skeptical that the French are gonna, you know, put nuclear weapons under yeah. German control. I want to rephrase what I said earlier. I said, "Who the fuck wants the United States anymore?" Everybody wants the United States. The question is whether or not you can trust the United States. Yeah, Assumes. look, what do you think? I, I just want to. So, part of what we're talking about depends on you know what you think the broader trend lines are in terms of what moves countries. So what we t- when we talk about NATO, we're talking about uh, big a big country, big countries that are like, hey, we'll go ahead and we will change the traditional orientation of a country to have its own military, et cetera, et cetera. Like that's something that, that they're willing, that Germany is willing to go on with. Countries that, that, and you see that these smaller countries, the who's that of former Warsaw Pact countries like the North Montenegros and it's uh, North Ma- Macedonias, et cetera. <laughs> More of them all the time. Yeah. Like the, Balkanization. <laughs> right. They're, they're, they want to go this way. They want to go the Western way. And so one of the big arguments in international relations is, okay, we're in fact coming to the, the broader realization that cooperation is a more beneficial way forward than competition. That you don't need to have military competitions, you don't have to have wars, you don't have to have competing blocks, that you can just work together. Is it going to work all, all the time in all ways? No. Will there be big setbacks and lots of questions? We're actually going through one of those right now in terms of globalization as a form of massive economic cooperation. That said, like the overall trend lines from 1945 through present, still there's still a lot of evidence to say, like, look, NATO needs new missions. And if you look at historians of NATO, they say, well, in each decade since its inception, it's taken on a new mission. And mm. what needs is a stronger mission going forward. Mm-hmm. And this is where the American question, to come back to what you were talking about, Steve, is when is the U.S. going to get its house in order? particularly in terms of having a sense of what its broader foreign policy goals are. Because, and this, you know, here you go, Steve, here's another free uh, Trump rant for you. This is part of the problem of uh, Donnie Genius and his, like, half-assed isolationism. Because he, he can talk isolationist rhetoric, but they're so fucking incompetent uh, that they made this announcement to pull out a, a third of these troops before they were even ready to do it, and they didn't even coordinate with the Department of Defense to do it. They didn't coordinate with folks in, in other Republicans in Congress. They just fucking made the announcement. And so it's just as possible that next week we'll Nothing find happens. out like buried in like on the on the 14th page of wh- or whatever that looks like in the age of the Internet that it, <laughs> nothing fucking happens because these ass clowns can't get their shit together. But they just keep making mischief. They keep sowing discord. Look, there's this administration does this a lot. I think there's two reasons for it. One is that Trump likes to advance what I'll call conversational gambits, make threats. Most of them are empty. Uh, some of them are not. 
but most of them are. There's two reasons that the threat might be empty. One is that he loses interest. The other is that, as you say, the administration is incompetent and like literally cannot arrange the new policy or people elsewhere in the administration just put the kibosh on it um, or Congress kind of steps in. I believe there's a group of 22, what is it, GOP representatives? Yeah, who kind of like, hey, yeah, no, this is no good. You got to you got to tone it down here. Yeah. In an election year, in an election year. That being said, the Republican base and I don't think this is necessarily going to change anytime soon. They are isolationist. They've been turned around on trade. They've been turned around on foreign entanglements. Um, This is this is a through going, uh, I guess, thread in American history. It's not like isolationism is like alien to the United States. I, I totally agree with you on the historical uh, on on the historical prevalence of isolationism yeah. in U.S. foreign policy thought. It's common. It's the inclinations span all parts of the political spectrum. And I, I, I won't. I, I teach the stuff. I'm not going to fight you on that. I will, however, say that when it comes to the Republican base, I think if Trump decided to say, "No, we need to get big, and we need to go big <laughs> in Germany," they would fall in line. Probably. The, That's the, right. The, the thing about like what you said, and Steve, this is something that I think is something that folks should focus on, and it's hard with the way how fast news moves is the conversational gambit thing, right? He'll mm. say something. This is an example from as far back as yesterday. The president, <laughs> the, the president was in Maine, and the gentleman, uh, out of nowhere, while talking to the uh, the former governor of Maine, big Trump supporter, uh, LePage. Page. Yeah, LePage. They're talking about fucking lobsters and Trump. Lo- lobsters. I thought you said mobsters, but no, lobsters, no, no, yeah. no, no, no. They're talking about lobsters. Yeah, that makes more sense. And Trump is like he hears about there's like tariffs on on Maine lobsters, but not Canadian lobsters, even though they occupy similar waters. What everyone knows how geography works, and and, and lobsters are not very mobile creatures. Nonetheless, he's like ah, the European Union. There, you know what? I'm gonna get on. I'm gonna make a call. I'm gonna get some tariffs on them. You know what? Let's write a letter. And he just throws the shit out there. He just throws the shit out there. Like, the dude didn't know anything about lobsters, and he goes from zero to to tariff letter. And, you know, nobody's going to follow this except for comedians because they need material. And the elucidators, but yeah. yeah. (laughs) We also need the material. Thanks, Donnie. (laughs) But look, all right. I didn't know the lobster thing. Yeah, that's... That maybe changes everything. (laughs) (laughs) It it might, it might. But, I mean, look... Trump routinely screws things up. I'm not disputing any of that, but it's like this predates Trump as we were talking about. Yeah. And there are large structural forces at play when it comes to talking about NATO, like the Soviet Union's gone. Um, The Russians are still able to threaten their near abroad and that's about it. Their conventional forces are shit. Yeah. Um, now I don't know how you get off the hook for defending countries like the Baltics because there's no provision in the NATO charter for how you kick a country out once it's in. So <laughs> m- maybe that's just an issue that has maybe to be dealt with. Maybe the country just conveniently disappears after a while. <laughs> <laughs> so countries can leave. Like in the original yes, charter, they can leave. Ten- but yeah. it's, you know, it's like people have been talking about. Oh, we needed to kick Turkey out of NATO. Like, yeah, they've been a, they've been a pretty assy member. But like you can't, like you can't do that. 
Um, <laughs> so there, there's that part of it, like the, the Soviet threat, the German problem I'm hearing from you guys, you seem to think like you give the Germans the benefit of the doubt at this point. I give the Germans a cleaner bill of health than the Americans. Then, 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 then fair enough. So Sumi's yeah. talking about like, it needs another mission. Like what the hell is that mission? Like this is a military alliance designed to provide security in Western Europe. And like, it seems like it's done that. Yeah. So there is no appetite in either U.S. party for additional ill-advised um, imperial wars. That's not going probably going to happen anymore. What is going to happen is a new Cold War against China, seemingly. That could be a great mission for NATO, um, assuming that we can get everybody on board for that. Yeah, how do you, how do, you do that, though, Steve? Like, it's one thing if you're Germany and France and, like, Russia's near, like close to you. Like, yeah, the Germans have done deals. You know, what was it? They had, did something with Huawei, which upset Trump. Like, it's it's harder to get Europe on board to confront China than it is to confront Russia. So, yes and no. Um, I'll make a few arguments. One argument is that globalization. That's the argument. Just globalization, the big explanation point. Exclamation point in that the globe is shrinking. China's not as far away as it used to be. Um, because we have all of these technologies, yada, 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 the, the next battle will be fought in cyberspace and, and actual outer space, which is why we have a space force, so on and so forth, right? We're not so worried about the fall of the gap. Um, we're worried about the gap in cyber capabilities and them stealing our Bitcoin and shit. So with all of that in mind and the race to like, you know, general artificial intelligence, self-driving cars, all this sort of thing. Huawei, uh, that controversy has to do with a uh, very important technology firm, uh, Chinese, that is attached to the Chinese government and is not fully trusted by the United States security establishment because it is believed that they build their chips with backdoors that allow Chinese intelligence to basically eavesdrop on signals intelligence, which is exactly what the NSA has done for years and years, by the way. Required by law to cooperate, I believe, yeah. with China's military establishment. Yes. Uh, I don't know that the uh, American tech companies are required by law to cooperate with the NSA, but they sure as fuck do and always have and probably always will. Uh, China now has an equivalent in Huawei, and we have been pressuring the British, the French, the Germans, everybody to not use this technology. We've kicked them out of the U.S. entirely, and this is a big bone of contention in the brewing Cold War. Um, so all this to say, the new Cold War is not going to look like the old Cold War. We're not talking about tanks on the Central European plane. That's not what this is about. This is about the race to dominate uh, really like world-bending technologies, in my opinion. Um, and for NATO to be useful in that context, it's going to look and do things very differently. Yeah. So, okay. So, so if that's right, do you need 35,000 troops in Germany? (laughs) I don't think so, man. So, you know, fair enough. It's like, we can probably go down to 25 and it's okay. Um, obviously Trump didn't, doesn't know any of this and didn't do that for anything approximating no, that reason. It was done very incompetently, so I'm not giving him the benefit of the doubt. But. No. Uh, there are people in the administration and in the larger foreign policy uh, intellisphere, I guess, uh, that are thinking about this carefully, though. 
Um, and they understand that the alliance needs to shift. Um, it also is going to need a big naval component um, to deal with the South China Sea. I mean, we talked about this kind of last week. Um, South China Sea, the the Indian Ocean as well. Um, does NATO have a role to play in either of these places? Not at the moment, but if NATO expands to the Pacific, even though it's the <laughs> North Atlantic Treaty Organization, it could. Um, Australia could become part of NATO. Japan is an affiliated power, I believe. And on and on it goes. Hold on. I'm going to say a couple things about the geographic nonsense that is NATO. First of all, <laughs> uh, and the whole like basis that it should be a democratic thing. Mm. One of the original NATO members is Portugal, uh, which was under military, military dictatorship and under Salazar. And this is partially because we wanted access to the Azores, which are a group of islands in the middle of, middle of the Atlantic. Turkey hasn't always been a robust democracy. It is not currently. It is not currently, right? And part of, like, if you go and read the, the NATO charter, they talk about Tropic of Cancer. This was because at the time, in the late 40s, several European countries still had lots of colonies, and the French were insistent that Algeria be, uh, be included and oh, then God. a French colony. Uh, which, which is why they talk about the Tropic of Cancer to, to keep it in. The, the Dutch at the time wanted Indonesia included in NATO. So to like ex- extend the North Atlantic Treaty Organization into other parts of the world is not like intellectually unprecedented. I'm not saying one way or the other. I'm just like adding some historical color to that yeah. part of the conversation. In terms of a future mission for, for NATO, which is what, you know, we've been talking about for the last few minutes. It's not entirely clear to me what it would be, but it does. It is clear to me that amongst security folks in the alliance, there is there is consensus that keeping the band going, keeping it on the road and playing and pumping <laughs> out albums, is a good is a good idea. It's been seventy one years. That is the longest major alliance, I think, in, in the world history, history of the world. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah. And so it's like, it is one of these things that if you are of a certain international relations, uh, bent, you look at this stuff and you say, look, we are in the slow and ugly, but still, uh, inevitable movement towards full cooperation, global governance, increasing collective security throughout the, yo, gee, Jack, I see your eyebrows. You can put them back down. (laughs) I, so I, d- I did my final thoughts. Sumi's in the process of doing his final thoughts. Galen will do you next. I'm Fair just enough, saying, man. like, yeah. there, is a, there is an intellectual argument that you keep NATO going and it keeps, you know, like, uh, like Jay-Z just keeps reinventing himself. This is what NATO does. And as long as there's will behind <laughs> it, you, NATO keeps going, even if it, no, it is not about the North Atlantic and Western Europe is already secure. Yeah, I mean, I suppose I'm a little bit more skeptical. I think the, I think what we've discussed lends more credence to uh, a skeptical take on NATO than anything else. Like, if if you're talking about maintaining good transatlantic relations, I won't give you any argument there. Um, but given what we've been talking about, like taking 10,000 troops out. If, if Russia is really not a threat anymore, and if you want to make an argument that we should be making major security guarantees to the Baltic states and Poland, and we can have that discussion. But if you're not prepared to make it on that basis, 
it's unclear to me why you need any troops then um, if we think that these problems have been solved. Um, and this is going to be like a cyberspace, like maybe we're talking like a transatlantic cyberspace agreement, but that sure. strikes me as quite different from, you know, what we've come to know as NATO. It would be, but I mean, there's some value to having continuity, uh, in terms of the institutions and, you know, it can still be called NATO and do something entirely different and have these legacy functions where if you need to bomb someplace, you can still bomb it. You know, like <laughs> odds are we're going to need to do some bombing at some point or somebody's going to argue that we do and we'll listen to them and go along with it. OK, that I, I take all of that. The, the way it's discussed, though, is NATO is like a sacred cow in the security establishment. Absolutely. Like, yeah. NATO is like untouchable. Um, and, and, you know, I understand why NATO has been a smashing success. I mean, look at this logo behind me. This logo is yeah. awesome. <laughs> so cool. Like NATO did, you know, served its purpose for for many years. Like I understand yeah. why people admire NATO. Um, I can kind of see the argument of it's it's less necessary, at least in the role it has traditionally served, than it was in the past. Yeah, the Stones still sell out stadiums. Go ahead, <laughs> keep going. Um, we are done. We have discussed NATO uh, and. We've talked about what this might mean, and thanks a lot, guys. All right, later. All right, talk to you later, guys. Talk to you next week.